Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Janis Joplin died at the age of 27, and she lived a life where relapse and vice were all too frequent. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. 12 would be the number of months her group, the Cosmic Blues Band, would remain intact before the mediocrity of their playing led them to the same defunct fate as Big Brother. One more would be the number of days she would wait after being treated for heroin addiction before she was out looking for her next fix. Another five would be the number of minutes it would take for a carnival parade to have an unexpectedly negative effect on her fragile detoxing state. Two more would be the number of unexpected visitors who showed up at her door in order to commence what they would deem the great tequila boogie. And seven would be the number of months she had left to live when she pulled out a bar stool at Barney's Beanery in West Hollywood and suddenly felt strange energy that she was unable to describe. On this, our ninth episode of season three, Withdrawal, Carnival, The Great Tequila Boogie, and Janis Joplin walking a winding path to liberation. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
The shakes were new. They came out of nowhere, and they came at the absolute worst moments. Janis Joplin was on stage at Madison Square Garden with the Cosmic Blues Band. They were flanked by two guests, Paul Butterfield on one side, Johnny Winter on the other. It was December 19, 1969, and that's when the shakes came. Johnny Winter dressed in black velvet in a black cape that provided a stark contrast to his long shock of white hair, didn't notice. He was too busy playing his gold top Les Paul held tight against the middle of his chest. Paul Butterfield, cradling his honer harmonica in between his lips and the microphone, also didn't notice. He was too busy blowing air through the reeds of his electrified harp. But Janice noticed. She heard the shakes before she even felt them. She heard all the bracelets and bangles on her wrist jangle in their motley cacophony from down where her arm hung at her side. She couldn't control the shaking, and she couldn't control the sound of her jewelry, which cut through the stadium-sized din of the rock and roll band. And the sound cut right through everything else. It was for her ears only. She was derailed, and the band sounded like shit to her. Johnny Winter, Johnny was all right, man. The dude was dressed in fucking black velvet, cool as fuck, but the band sounded off, felt off to Janice, and she was worried that they only sounded off to her in the way that she could only hear and feel what was going on with her own body. She was in withdrawal. She needed to score. Her small supply of dolaphine had just run out, literally the day before the show, and she was back to feeling that untethered, sinking feeling. Back to feeling the weight, feeling the heavy pain that sat on her head. Her throat hurt and her eyes ached and her joints burned. She was irritable as shit. She needed a hit. And she found it. Easily. Backstage behind the garden's ominous curtain, once the show was over and Johnny and Paul had gone off with their respective entourages, Janice lingered a bit. Lingered when she saw the familiar outline of the person she knew would have the very medicine she needed. Fuck that dolophine bullshit and Grossman's cure. She was a grown woman and could handle herself. Always had, always would. And she wasn't necessarily committing to a lifetime of addiction, okay? She just needed a goddamn fix so that her hands would stop shaking and her bracelets would stop rattling. She watched the outline of the dealer recede further into the shadows of the backstage expanse, past a few wooden chairs and around the edge of the heavy curtain. The cosmic blues guys were mingling amongst themselves, nursing calloused fingers and blistered palms. They weren't paying much attention to Janice at all in the moment. She didn't know it, but they had felt what she had felt about the show. They were off. Whether they were off because Janice was off, they didn't know. But whatever the fuck was going on, the mojo was bad. It may have been working for Johnny Winter and Paul Butterfield, but it sure wasn't working for them. Janice made her way over to the dark corner of the backstage area. She could see the whites of the dealer's eyes, and she fumbled around in the pocket of her jeans for some loose bills. And the closer she got to that shadow area around the corner of the curtain, the more her hands slowed, the more the shaking subsided, and the anticipation of a sure high was just as strong as the high itself. When the Cosmic Blues guys stopped talking for a moment and looked around for Janice, she was nowhere to be found, and they wouldn't see her for the rest of the evening. Just weeks earlier, Janice Joplin was beginning to realize that the very thing she thought would liberate her was, in fact, holding her back, holding her hostage. She was caged by dope. She was sick with it, a helpless addict. She thought of the very word addict and was both horrified and resigned when she finally admitted to herself that she was one. She was locked in a vicious cycle where one high led to another. One shot of dope in her arm was never enough and two was too many. 
She thought of Sam Andrews. He OD'd and nearly died. She thought of Nancy Gurley. She OD'd and did die. Goddamn Nancy. In front of the goddamn kid, too. Janice ponied up 20 grand to James Gurley's legal defense when he was put on trial for the death of his wife since he was the one who gave her the fatal shot of heroin. James was clear to the crime. And then, what did Janice do? She had her own brush with death. She played a show with another one of her idols, Big Mama or Etta James or B.B. King, she didn't even remember anymore. All she remembered was, after the show, she settled into a room somewhere with a plastic baggie of heroin and the next thing she knew, her friends were slapping her blue face back to life. And this was exactly what Albert Grossman had told her not to do. No schmees, he said, when he first signed Janice and Big Brother, that was the one caveat. He didn't want Janice getting mixed up in that shit because it was shit, plain and simple, and it would end her. But Grossman wasn't stupid. Janice and the others thought they had been able to hide their habits behind Grossman's back, but he was onto them. And when it was time to step in, he stepped in. Grossman told Janice that he had a guy, Dr. Ed Rothschild. He specialized in drug addiction. He made her an appointment to see him and get the help that she needed. Grossman worried that it was too late, that it was too late to make any difference with Janice, but he owed it to her to try. Rothschild gave her a 10-day supply of dolefine, basically methadone in tablet form. She took them once a day, and then they ran out. And then she played the show at the garden where she couldn't stop thinking about getting astronomically high. And just like before, chasing one high led to chasing another and another. She was off the wagon once again. Grossman suggested some pretty big changes. Janice should take a little time off. And they put the Cosmic Blues Band on ice. The boys didn't know it at the time, but the Madison Square Garden gig would wind up being their last. In January 1970, Janice would turn 27. She should chill, lay off the dope, lay off the drama of the band, recharge her batteries, clear her mind. And in a few, she and Grossman could start talking about assembling a new band, a better band. And she would be recharged and clear-minded to lead them into greatness. And then she thought of something else that would help her get to that place, to a place of self-preservation and self-discovery. A trip, a big trip, out of the country, out of her head, somewhere she had always wanted to go. But who knows what she'd find there. Grossman crossed his fingers in vain and hoped to himself that it wasn't a bad idea. February 1970, Rio de Janeiro. The streets pulsed with light and sound. Parade floats glowed as they appeared to glide through the mass of ecstatic revelers. Dancers in matching outfits, some with ornate hats and headdresses that leaned and wobbled on top of their heads, moved their bodies to the samba music. Long white dresses swirled and twirled in the dark, the embroideries along the edges catching the light and sparkling with life. And the colors erupted from every direction and every angle, oranges, reds, yellows, purples. And there were floats made it look like horses and others that looked like dragons. From every block, the rapturous sound of cymbals and drums and undeniable rhythm infiltrated every ear and every mind and every ass in the city. And there was no escaping the party. Carnival in Rio was non-stop. And this is why Janis Joplin was here. 
why she made the trip all the way to Rio. She had recently seen Black Orpheus, Marcel Camus' 1959 film that told the story of Orpheus and Eurydice in the setting of the centuries-old celebration that draws hundreds of thousands to the streets of Rio every February. She fell under the spell of the city that she witnessed in the movie and of the celebration that it documented. It was full of color, full of sound, and full of some of the most blatant liberation on planet Earth. The liberation was there, in plain sight. The colors, the outfits, the dances, the music, the have-nots dressed up like the haves, women in barely their bikinis, men dressed in drag, sweaty bodies gyrating in the 80-degree heat, a mythical figure, King Momo, giving his blessing to all in the city to cut loose and indulge. The masses took over the streets of Rio for a few days once a year and let it all out. No holds barred. Janice wanted the promise that that film laid bare. She wanted to get free. Janice had just turned 27 years old. She had disbanded the Cosmic Blues Band. She needed some time to collect her thoughts before holding auditions for a new groove. She needed this extreme change of scenery, but she needed something else too. She needed a fix. She was out of her dolophine again. She felt the shakes coming on again as the seemingly endless parade snaked its way past where she stood on the sidelines. It was a chill that she wasn't able to escape, a chill that would hunt her down and follow her no matter if she was in San Francisco or New York City or Rio. The chill would find her. The chill would find her and remind her of all the things she missed, the things she wanted, the things she needed. And the rhythm of the cymbals and the drums penetrated her head and then shot lightning bolts down her spine. Her hands were vibrating and she could feel an oncoming migraine like the high beams of a tractor trailer rolling down the highway at 70 miles an hour. She began to sweat, and not just from the humid Rio evening. She reached out and grabbed David Nyhouse's arm to steady herself, and the feel of his skin on hers gave her some comfort. A passing float with a giant horse glowed with color, and then it began to move, and the torso of the oversized horse pulsing along with the rhythm of the samba. It was perfectly timed with the music, imperfectly timed with the pounding she was feeling in her head. And the synchronicity was freaky. Every time the horse's belly would pulse inward, she could see its ribcage poke out. She leaned her head into David's shoulder and said, are you seeing this? David just cradled her in his arm and tried to calm her shaking hands. It was obvious, she thought, that the two of them were watching different parades. David was one of the first people Janice met when she arrived in Rio with her friend, Linda Gravenitis. A fellow American, David had done time in the Peace Corps in law school and now was traveling the Amazon with his friend, Ben Beal. He saw her lounging on the Ipanema beach and made the first move. He didn't even recognize her as the Janice Joplin until the second day that they hung out. David was down to earth and Janice felt stabilized around him, even in her unstable state. It was his magic power. And nowhere did his magic power prove to be more clutch than in this moment during the carnival parade in Rio. A samba school of kids danced and clapped around the huge horse float as it continued to move up the street. The greens and whites of their outfits matched the colors of the float and on the horse. And their rhythm became louder, more urgent. And then Janice watched as the horse's eyes began to glow a deep red. A red so deep and so hot that she could see smoke coming from its burning sockets. And now the Samba kids' eyes were glowing red too. And every time they spun around in their shirts and dresses plumed out, they would direct their gazes right back to Janice and their red eyes would sear deep into her flesh. And the shaking of her hands intensified and the pounding in her head and down her spine were becoming unbearable. And the chill had found her again. 
She panicked. She had to escape the crowd. And that was the first thing she had to do. David had to haul her out of there. She was out of dolophine. She had no heroin. All she had was the chill and the increasing fear that something awful was about to happen. She needed David's help. David led her away from the demonic horse float and the red-eyed samba school, away from the crowds and the incessant rhythm and noise. And they got real free then. They rolled thumb up the coast. They slept on beaches and there were no crowds. It was just them, the sand, the water, and the horizon. David held Janice tight every time the chill grabbed hold of her and wouldn't let go. He held her tighter than the chill until the chill went away. And they rented a motorcycle and tore ass up the road towards Bahia. On route, the bike hit a medium strip and they were both thrown onto the road. And they walked away unscathed, happy to be alive, and wound up hitching the rest of the way to Salvador. And the happy to be alive feeling stuck with her. Eventually, Janice felt calm. She rode the wave of calmness for a few days straight and was hopeful that the combination of the Brazilian countryside, David's company, and good old-fashioned cold turkey would make her addiction a thing of the past. She had sweated out at Carnival, thrown it out from the backseat of the motorcycle. She was ready to go back home. She flew back to California on her own, and David had vowed to return with her, but he realized that he had overstayed his visa and had to stay behind for a while to sort things out. She got back to her house in Larkspur in Marin County, her first real house that she had bought in the fall of 1969 with all that Albert Grossman money. It was still new to her, and she unlocked the door, walked inside, and dropped her suitcase on the floor of the entryway. She walked into the living room and sat down on the couch. Everything was quiet, Larkspur was quiet, and the house was quiet. Even the redwood trees stood still and didn't make a peep. It was too quiet. She thought about ringing someone up, maybe Pigpen or Sam or Linda. Maybe she'd ring up one of the angels that could rip through a bottle of something hard and sweet and then tear ass on the 101, the salty Pacific air blowing through her long hair. Days later, when David would finally get his visa situation squared away and make his way to Janice's doorstep, He'd encounter one of those angels boys in the most unexpected way. David and Janice were in bed and were startled by a noise coming from the kitchen. David jumped up to investigate, tiptoed his way to the kitchen in a t-shirt and underwear to find a couple of Hell's Angels going through the fridge. One turned to face David and pulled a gun from his thick leather belt. And then he asked David the question that David had been thinking all along. Who the fuck are you? But right now, Janice didn't have David or any of the angels boys and the calm that had washed over her in Brazil was withering away. Something else was growing in its place, something coming up fast and queasy. She picked up the phone and made the call that she had wanted to make since the day she left for Rio. She called her dealer and asked him to bring around a bag of heroin. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Janis Joplin's St. Bernard Mastiff Mix, Thurber, lifted his head from the floor as soon as he heard the knock on the door. A long, wet blob of slobber hung from his bottom lip. His ears perked up. He waited to hear the knock again. And for a moment, there was silence. Thurber cocked his ear in the opposite direction and wondered if maybe there hadn't been a knock at all. Maybe he'd imagined the whole thing. He did that a lot. 
He was a dog after all. And then suddenly the knocking resumed. This time it was louder and harder than before, rapid and urgent. A man's voice called out Janice's name. Thurber barked. He jumped up from the floor and scurried towards the door, his toenails clicking against the hardwood, his shaggy dog frame swishing this way and that. He stuck his head out through the four-foot-high dog door that Janice had installed when she bought the house. It was a one-story wood-shingled place on a cul-de-sac surrounded by redwoods in Larkspur, just north of San Francisco. Everything about it was the exact opposite of the places she had lived in California prior. It was secluded and tranquil, and it was about as far away from the limelight or the party as you could get. And that didn't mean that Janice didn't bring the party to Larkspur. On the contrary, she still liked to party. She still liked to be surrounded by people. She often had them out to her place out there at 380 West Baltimore in the Creekside part of town called Baltimore Canyon, where the neighbors weren't breathing down your neck and neither were the fuzz. When David Niles was in town, he got a taste of that party more often than he wanted. And the two of them would go into town and within minutes, their party of two became a party of 20 and then 40. Fans, friends, musicians, hippies, freaks. The party would make its way back to Larkspur and then the very person David had traveled to California to see would be virtually unattainable to him. And the last straw with David didn't involve a party per se, but it did involve a scenario where he came back to Janice's house to find her high on heroin. He told her he couldn't stand to watch her do that to herself. He reminded her of what happened to Nancy and to Sam and to Janice herself on that night after the Winterland show. Janice didn't listen, but she did beg him to stay. Said she'd quit junk if he would stay with her forever. He knew she didn't mean it. He told her he was leaving to travel some more and at some point down the line they'd find each other again. He would return another time to knock on her door. And now, someone else was knocking on her door. Thurber huffed and puffed some more the slobber dripping and splattering with each movement as he assessed the two men outside. One had a big beard and a bulging black guitar case in his hand. Hey there, boy, the guitar man said in a deep, gruff voice that immediately put Thurber at ease. Is your mama home? And then the door opened, and there was Janice, still groggy from a slow-motion morning, still hungover from the night before. She was surprised to see Bob Newworth standing before her, and at his side, this bearded beauty of a man with a guitar case in his hand and his eyes squinted nearly shut. I've got a present for you, Bob said, and pushed the man towards Janice, as if one of them was a magnet and the other was steel. Janice Joplin, meet Chris Christofferson. Chris, this is Janice. Bob had in his time saved Janice, saved her band and delivered her one of her signature songs, and now he was delivering the man behind that song. But still, she wasn't sure what was happening. Janice asked the boys just how they found themselves on her doorstep at the end of a cul-de-sac in Marin County. The last she had heard, Bob was hanging out in New York City with Ramblin' Jack Elliott. Well, it happened like this, Chris began. We were at this apartment in New York City, real upscale spot. You could see the whole city laid out in front of you from this floor-to-ceiling window. You know, all the city lights, the taxi lights, flash of the public works trucks backing down a one-way, the bright blue lights of the police hollering at someone to stop. Odetta was there, and her laugh was filling that whole place up. And pretty soon, we were all breathing in Odetta's laughter just as much as we're breathing oxygen. The Ramblin' Jack was there too, dreadnought strapped around his shoulder, just loitering on a D7 cord. And Mickey Newbury too, and Michael J. Pollard, funnier and shit, telling us all about how hot Faye Dunaway really was, how she was hotter than she even was on the screen. 
You saw Bonnie and Clyde, right? Hell, you might just be the best damn girl in Texas. Anyway, a bottle of tequila is making the rounds more laughter and D7 chords and more stories about Faye Dunaway. And then the coke is out on the table and Bob starts yelling, Hey, Range Rider. That's what Bob calls me. He calls me Range Rider. You hear this parade of noses tooting on lines, one hoover after another, you know, and Bobby's going, hey, Range Rider, shit, so I knock back a line, you know, everybody's knocking back a line or two, and suddenly those city lights, the whites and the blues and the reds, suddenly they got real wild, like fireworks, and I can feel the tequila just coursing through my veins, you know, and now Odetta's singing something, and Jack's found the A chord, thank the good Lord, and Bob goes, hey, Range Rider, let's hop on a plane to San Francisco and go pay Joan Baez a visit. Janice stared at Chris and Bob with a look of confusion. She didn't get it. This wasn't San Francisco. She sure as shit wasn't Joan Baez. Chris said things got fuzzy after that. After they left the apartment on a whim, bought the plane tickets, got on the plane, passed out in their seats, and woke up somewhere over Kansas or Colorado. But when they woke up, Bob said he had a better idea, better than Joan Baez in San Francisco. He thought Chris should meet the woman who had been the latest to take on me and Bobby McGee. She was always in the mood to whoop it up, and they were in the mood to whoop it up too. Bob was thinking not just playing matchmaker between a songwriter and a singer, but between a man and a woman. So, here they were. Bob Newworth and Chris Christofferson were standing in the doorway of Janis Joplin's single story with her dog, Thurber, working up a pool of gooey saliva at their feet. And then Bob spoke up. We're calling it the Great Tequila Boogie. You want a boogie? Let's boogie. Let's full tilt boogie, baby. And then Bob had a handle of Cuervo out from behind his back, and he was inside of the house now, rummaging around the cupboards in the kitchen in search of some decent glassware to pass around. Chris and Janice hit it off immediately. They sang, they talked, they bonded over their Texas upbringing. They embarked on a full-tilt boogie bender together, and they inevitably wound up in bed. She played a me and Bobby McGee on an acoustic guitar, and then he taught her Sunday morning coming down his hangover song to end all hangover songs, the one that Johnny Cash had covered on his television show. As with all of Chris's lyrics, they cut deep into Janice. She held the marks that they left at bay, though whether it was the pina coladas they made for breakfast or the screwdrivers they made for lunch or the cocktails that would be waiting for them at the city bars when they made their way into town each evening. But no matter how long she held it off, no matter how long she put it out of her mind, Sunday morning would come down and it would come down hard on Janis Joplin. There was something about Barney's Beanery in West Hollywood that felt familiar to her. Janis Joplin bellied up to the bar, Chris Christofferson by her side, and Deja Vu took up a deep-seated bar stool right next to her. Perhaps it was the look and feel of the place. It reminded her a little of Rio, to be honest. It was an eruption of color in a cramped space, and the ceiling littered with license plates from all over the country. The plates left by patrons who had made the pilgrimage to Los Angeles and its fabled eateries and left behind a token of their travels. Even the backs of the booths and seats in the place were burst with color like a Crayola box come to life. Or maybe it was the grandfathered intolerance of the place that reminded her of her early life as a kid in Texas. If you looked in the right spot at Barney's, right behind the bar near the draft beer tabs, you could still see the painted wooden sign that read, Faggots, Stay Out. 
And the slur itself was misspelled, of course, one G instead of two. And Janice found it fitting that a message of hatred was penned by someone whose basic ignorance also applied the basic grammar. And the sign had been put there in 1940 by the original owner, John Barney Anthony, and the bar's new owner, Erwin Held, had no intention of taking it down. Even with its growing gay community, West Hollywood certainly wasn't San Francisco, Janice thought, and Barney's was not the anxious asp. The sign and the attitudes behind the desire to hang the sign and keep the sign reminded Janice of Port Arthur and all the intolerant people she wanted to get away from. And now, here, in this supposedly liberated state and liberated city, a totem of repression and hate stared her in the face. But that wasn't it. There was something else about the place, something that made her feel like she had sat in this particular bar stool before and that she would again. Something that called to her, that kept her coming back. Even though she clearly disagreed with management on basic human rights, the joint was like a car wreck to her personal constitution. Loud, tacky, off-putting if you knew where to look, but like a car wreck, she couldn't look away and couldn't not stop popping in for a burger and a beer. The great tequila boogie, as it was coined by Bob Newworth, was coming to a close. Janice and Chris both felt it winding down, this intense period of romance and whooping it up. And they were a great fit for a few weeks of boogieing, but neither was prepared for the long haul. Bob had set them up and went on his own merry way, but not before coining the name for what would become Janice's new band, the Full Tilt Boogie Band. At the bar, Janice and Chris talked about the new roster of players, which included the Cosmic Blues Band's Brad Campbell, the guy who had his blonde mustache painted black, along with a crew of mostly Canadians hungry for the same sort of stack-slathered R&B that Janice craved. But the more they talked and the more pints they drank, the more their conversation turned to serious subjects, the way conversation often turns when great, spontaneous things come to their inevitable end. She told Chris about the guy on the Harley that she saw in her dreams, the one on a gold bike painted with orange flames, the one who showed up out of nowhere when she was wandering on foot near the Vedanta Society in Olima. Chris raised an eyebrow, just listened. Chris could tell that Janice wasn't happy. They had had a great time together, but she didn't seem happy about that. Her new band was off to a great start, but she didn't seem happy about that. And in the span of a few short months, so much had happened. The relapse back into heroin, Rio, David Nyhaus, the breakup of her second band, and all of it seemed to conspire to making her unhappy. Three dog nights, Mama told me not to come, thudded from Barney's jukebox. Chris settled up their bar tab. What's next, Janice? Chris asked her in that deep-toned, gruff, but intimate way he had of talking. What was next? She didn't know what was around the corner. When someone asked her that kind of question inside Barney's Beanery, she was really thrown for a loop. That place put out some weird energy, so weird that she couldn't put her finger on it. She knew that the good would only come with the bad. She knew that much for sure. Around the corner, Janice would unknowingly run into things from her past that she wanted to escape. Not to mention more violence and self-destruction. And neither David Nyhaus or Chris Christopherson would be there to help see her through it all. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. This episode of The 27 Club is brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I also host. Disgraceland is available only on the free Amazon Music app. 
To hear tons of insane stories about your favorite musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, Nirvana, Prince, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Grateful Dead, The Rolling Stones, Cardi B, and many, many more, go to amazon.com slash disgraceland. Or if you have an Echo device, just say, hey Alexa, play the Disgraceland podcast. The 27 Club is hosted and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lanetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Our previous seasons on Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison are available for you to binge right now wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to find and follow The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about the 27 Club. You can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.